The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. He shows up for something like this on a Friday night instead of all the other possible things <laughs> we could be doing. It says something about your practice. So I thought tonight I would talk a little bit about the chanting. Because last time I was here, Steve suggested that as a possible Dhamma reflection. So I will begin with a homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sanghang namasami. I want to start by talking about the second half of the chanting we did earlier. The part that begins, it's entitled here as a salutation to the triple gem. And it says, this is a salutation to the triple gem and a passage of encouragement. So the first thing I notice is the translation here, calling it a passage of encouragement and other Translations might say a passage to arouse urgency. So the, the Pali word there is sangwega. And this is a very important concept in, in, um, in Theravadan Buddhism, I find, in, in encouraging the practice so that we actually bring up a sense of urgency to understand the Dhamma, and to practice. And that can be fueled by life events. It can be fueled by something that arises in our practice, in our reflections. Uh, Once when I was staying at Abhayagiri, which is the monastery north um, in Redwood Valley, I was doing a lot of intensive practice around mindfulness of feeling and whatever was arising I would I would pay attention to it whatever feelings feeling or feelings were arising I would pay attention to that and really investigate it and look at look at that experience in terms of the three characteristics of impermanence suffering and not self so there was one night um, at the monastery when I had a dream, and it was very one of those very powerful, crystal clear dreams. And in this dream, there were some other aspects to it, but the one that's relevant, most relevant here, is this experience of seeing myself, my own face, 
um, deteriorating, as if aging in, in time-lapse photography, aging to the point of being really um, almost like a skeleton with skin over it, you know, just, just really going down towards death. And just seeing myself deteriorate in that way, meaning my body, was very powerful. It really brought up a sense of urgency. And because I was practicing so intensely with this process of being present with feeling, and I was feeling all the, I was feeling the feelings of watching myself in this process. And in the dream, I started to take those feelings and investigate them the way I was doing when I was awake. So when I really woke up from sleep, there was this very strong sense of urgency for the practice, a very strong sense of I really want to strive and do what I can. And what I mean by practice, it's not just the sitting meditation. It's not just meditation. It's the entire Eightfold Path. You know, purifying one's virtue and investigating the teachings and studying, developing to whatever degree one can, right view, and trying to discern what that is. So that was a a very encouraging experience. I think part of the mystery of this teachings of the Dhamma is that experiences around reflection on death don't turn out to be frightening or morbid or downpulling, but actually uplifting and freeing. Uh, reflections on the reality, the nature of our being. Um, There may be resistance or fear at various points, but the investigation brings us to a place of really opening the heart and feeling uplifted and free. So that's the kind of encouragement that this passage is meant to provide. The beginning part, the salutation to the triple gem, the Buddha absolutely pure with ocean-like compassion, possessing the clear sight of wisdom. You you see that amazing compassion of the Buddha. I mean, when we we see uh, in the suttas where it talks about the reason that the Buddha came, it was out of compassion for the world a real resonance in the heart for the suffering of beings. And that compassion is balanced by wisdom and destroyer of worldly self-corruption, putting an end to the craving that blinds us, the defilements, the upakilesas, 
And then the devotion gets expressed. And then with also with the Dhamma, describing the Dhamma in these beautiful terms, the teaching like a lamp, illuminating the path and its fruit, illuminating the deathless. That's, that's the inspirational part, right? Of looking at the impermanence of everything that we would call our self is to see beyond that to the unconditioned, to the unborn, to the deathless. That which is beyond the conditioned world. And then the Sangha, the most fertile ground for cultivation. Those who have realized peace awakened after the accomplished one. Of course, they're talking about the Aryan Sangha, the, the, those that have developed towards into any of the four, eight, really, stages of enlightenment. Noble and wise, all longing abandoned. Can you imagine? All longing abandoned. Um, And it says this salutation should be made to that which is worthy. And it reminds me of uh, one of the first times I was at a Bayagiri and so I, some of you may not know that my son is a monk, that that's how I entered the study of the Dhamma. And he went to Thailand to ordain, and he lived in Thailand for 10 years. And, um, and he invited me to come to the monastery at Abhaigiri before he left. And I started to go up there from time to time. And I would, when I was at the monastery, I would bow and everyone else would bow. But I still had this kind of funny apprehension about bowing to images or bowing to anything. And I was open-minded. But my training in fundamentalist Christianity for many years as a child was you know this is this is not the proper thing to do, and so at one point i I told Ajahn Pasano, so the abbot Atabaigiri, who then over time became my teacher, I don't do this at home. I mean, I was learning the Dhamma, I was starting to investigate, I was really developing faith, but I said i I, I do this here. Felt a little hypocritical. I do this. I bow here, but I don't bow at home. And and he said, "It's just paying respect to what's worthy of respect." So that brought me to a whole investigation about what what's really worthy of respect. What is that? And that was probably the the entrance into really reflecting on these qualities of the Buddha, these qualities of the Dhamma, and these qualities of the Sangha. That this, you know, and, and looking at each part, and what, what does that mean? And what do I think? So the, this kind of takes us to the first part of the, the morning chanting where you see this description of the Buddha, um, 
perfectly enlightened, impeccable in conduct and understanding, the accomplished one, the knower of the worlds, training perfectly those who wish to be trained, teacher of devas and humans, awake and holy. It goes on. These, these descriptions for the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha come right out of the suttas. And for each part, we can look at, well, what, what does that really mean? And take that in to our practice and investigate that. The teaching of the Dhamma, the way the Buddha taught the Dhamma, it wasn't to try to convince us of anything. Um, there was a, a, an experience that I had where I was chanting this together with with people who were were just staying together and not not necessarily coming to practice to focus on the Buddhist teaching. So like when I'm in a monastery, a Buddhist monastery, you know, the people who come come because they want those teachings. It's not like you're, you know, doing it in the park and everybody has to participate in this. But in this case, there, were, there was a collection of people who were not necessarily coming for that purpose. They were just there together. And we were doing the, the chanting. And then after some period of time, I asked someone how this was going. And the response was, well, I, th- I think it's effective in kind of convincing the mind that the quality, these qualities sort of like like maybe this is a little brainwashing exercise by chanting this every day. That was very interesting for me because that's not the Buddha's intention at all. Not at all. That, that we're not asked to accept anything on blind faith, but encouraged to investigate what do we think about that how does, and I don't mean that from the place of what's my opinion, you know, because that kind of puts me and my opinions in the center of the focus, but rather an open mindedness to really acknowledge okay, there's something to this. What does this really mean? And how does it relate to what I experience directly in my practice? So, as one does this investigation and looks at how it relates to our own lives, our own practice, what's arising, what we experience, what we learn as we study, then we start to see more deeply into these qualities these characteristics until the time comes that we notice that faith has been fully established. And this is something that is um, described as essential to development on the path. So it's part of what happens. It's part of what evolves in us as one enters the stream, so the first level of enlightenment. I copied uh, a short bit from the Anguttara Nikaya. That's the 
numerical discourses. And this is a translation by Ajahn Jeff. So this is part of the Vira Sutta. And it's talking about stream entry. So there, there are four different levels of, of awakening from the very beginning one, which is called stream entry, to the final one of arahantship and full, full freedom and peace. But this is the one describing four factors of stream entry with which the, the stream enterer is endowed. There is the case where the disciple of the noble ones is endowed with verified confidence in the awakened one, or in the Buddha. Indeed, the blessed one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. So, so really at a, at, a, at a gut level, at a basic understanding, realizing that, yes, the Buddha was enlightened, fully enlightened. Without that, what can we strive towards? If we don't develop that confidence, then do we really believe that we can awaken? This is truly possible and available to all of us. Consummate in knowledge and conduct, well gone, an expert with regard to the world, unexcelled as a trainer for those people fit to be tamed, the teacher of divine and human beings, awakened, blessed. That's the first aspect of the four, first stream enterer. Then the second one, he is endowed with verified confidence in the Dhamma. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One to be seen here and now, timeless, inviting verification, pertinent, to be realized by the wise for themselves. Now these things come through realization. And this is the whole point of Vipassana. You know, Vipassana isn't just a movement in America, <laughs> you know, but it's a step in the training or an aspect of practice, which is the insight investigation, the investigation that leads to insight. This insight arises. How does it come about? By keeping the mind open, by asking, well, this, this phrase here, do I... Does that resonate in my heart? Do I, do I see the truth in that? And then by just working with it, continuing to practice, do the meditation, clear the mind, develop the moral virtue, the sila, purify the heart, have that intention so strong of wanting to awaken. And then it happens. The third part is the verified confidence in the Sangha with all the same texts that we see in the chanting. So the chanting is there. If we practice it daily, it has a huge effect by kind of bringing these aspects into our awareness so that we can investigate them, so that they will arise in our meditation and we start to see more deeply into their meaning. So for the Sangha, as we chanted earlier, the Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, not just any disciples, not just any followers, but those who have practiced straightforwardly or uprightly, who have practiced methodically, 
here it says, who have practiced masterfully, in other words, the four pairs, the eight kinds of individuals. They are the Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples, worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect. The incomparable field of merit for the world. I don't know if you've had much experience being around people who have developed to these levels. But I believe that some of the people I have been around, particularly in Thailand, have. And it's amazing. I do see how it's a unsurpassed field of merit for the world. A real, you can, being like in someone's monastery or in just being in their proximity has such an impact on the heart. And then the fourth uh, quality here, he is endowed with virtues that are appealing to the noble ones, untorn, unbroken, unspotted, unsplattered, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, leading to concentration. These are the four factors of stream entry with which he is endowed. So that's just to give some idea of the purpose of, of reflecting on these passages again and again. One who knows things as they are has come into this world. He is an arahant, a perfectly awakened being, purifying the way, leading out of delusion, calming and directing to perfect peace, and leading to enlightenment. This way he has made known. Then we get into this teaching about dukkha, stress, suffering. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, and death is dukkha. When I used to wonder about that, and I was thinking, okay, I can really see the the dukkha in aging, I can see the dukkha in death, but what does it mean regarding birth? Okay, there's pain, yes, there's... I'm a mother, I have two grown children, and obviously... That was a phase of my life before becoming a nun. I had a sense that it wasn't just about that, right? And then the more of it, more listening to Dhamma talks and reading and studying, starting to understand that how it is birth that really sets the whole chain in motion. I mean, the reality once we're born is that we will die. That's what's coming. So you can check in with yourself when you hear this. If it feels like, I would much rather have a a Dhamma talk that tells me how joyous the practice is. (laughs) Beware of that and notice that, you know, this, this is really bringing us to freedom to really experience, to say, okay, this is, this is truth. There's a way in which this opening 
to the reality of the way things are, this is what brings real freedom. Even right here and now. And then it goes on to talk about the other ways in which we experience dissatisfaction or suffering or stress, separation from what we like, having to be around with what we don't like, not attaining our wishes. And then it talks about the focuses of the grasping mind as the five aspects of what we would think of as ourselves. Um, they, they say here in English, identification with the body. And it's rupa padana kando. It's really rupa upadana kando. It's the, the clinging to material form. It's not just the body, it's anything, the form. Um, It could be our body, it could be our attachment to other people, It, it could be our attachment to anything material. And on so on with feeling, perception, which is not just perception, but it's also memory. Uh, when we talk about the impermanence of these things, that's one that I'm really <laughs> relating to lately. <laughs> Memory is pretty impermanent. Memory and perception. Mental formations might also include mental activities. All the whole, the whole conflagration of, of mind, objects, mental formations, and consciousness. And then it goes through the three characteristics, or the other two. We've talked about suffering, impermanence and non-self. And it culminates with all conditions are impermanent and there is no self in the created or the uncreated. And that was a, that's a wonderful contemplation. There's no self in the created. In, in this realm of everything here is impermanent, there's no self in that. That's one of the, the things that the, the Buddha points out so well that if, it, if it's impermanent, how can that be a self? How can that be ours? How can we have any control over that or lasting enjoyment from that or... Um, how can that define an ongoing, substantial, consistent, lasting self? It can't. But then it also, no self in the uncreated. So again, to really, to really know this, deeply know this, it has to come from an insight. It's not something we can get to by reasoning. So it's like, it's that mysterious process of how does insight come? And from what I can tell, it comes from a desire to know, a strong desire to know, and a willingness to practice, to to calm the mind, to investigate the teachings, to investigate every aspect of 
what we understand and what we don't understand. And then it comes. I'd like to share part of a sutta that gives a different perspective on this whole teaching. And it's um, sutta number 28 in the middle-length discourses. It's called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Elephant's Footprint. The sutta is set in Sawati, in Jeta's Grove, in Anatapindika's Park. And it's delivered not by the Buddha himself, but by Venerable Sariputta, who was known as foremost in wisdom. And I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just going to do a portion of it, but we'll see a number of the aspects of what's in the chanting, probably from a bit different light. So first he begins with the simile of the elephant's footprint relative to the Dhamma. And he says, friends, just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint, and so the elephant's footprint is declared the chief of them because of its great size, so too all wholesome states or actually in Pali, this is kusala dhamma. This is like all wholesome or good dhammas, all wholesome teachings, all true teachings, can be included in the four noble truths. In what four? In the noble truth of suffering, in the noble truth of the origin of suffering, in the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, and in the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So then Venerable Sariputta picks the first one, and he's kind of going to drill down into the, the, the basis. And what is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. So we see that this is the same thing that we're seeing in the the chanting. And what are the five aggregates? So now he picks the last one there, and he's going to investigate that. What are these five aggregates affected by clinging? They are the material form aggregate affected by clinging, the feeling aggregate affected by clinging, the perception aggregate affected by clinging, the formations aggregate affected by clinging, and the consciousness aggregate affected by clinging. And then he, then he starts with the first one. What is the material form aggregate affected by clinging? And he says, so this is a way of investigation. He says, it's the four great elements and the material form derived from the four great elements. So all material form is made up of some combination of these four elements. Earth, water, fire, and air. Or the solid 
the, the liquid or flowing or cohesive, the heat, and air is a movement. So we're just going to talk about the earth element because it really lays out um, the basis for how to contemplate around this. What, friends, is the earth element? The earth element may be either internal or external. What is the internal earth element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. That is, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, and whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the internal earth element. Now both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. I found this really fascinating. It's like if I think, okay, this is me, right? I, I kind of like this me, and I'm attached to this me, and all this stuff is inside me that I carry around all the time that I cannot see, and frankly, wouldn't want to. But it's there, and I don't quite know what's going on with it. And at some point, somebody might say, there's something really going on with it that means you're about at the end of the line. Mm, okay, I'd rather not think about that. Okay, but there's, this, there's the solid aspect of that. And we can also do the same thing for the other elements. But there's the solid aspect of that. And here it says, whether it's that inside or it's outside. Oh, outside this book. It's this book is solid, this bell is solid, this clock is solid. Well, it's just earth element, and it's the same, internally or externally. To reflect on that starts to break down this idea of me and mine and how I like this. and you know. <laughs> so I find that really, I think, initially stops my mind. And that should be seen... The fact that this is internally or externally, it's just earth element. That should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the earth element. And this is a process, a process of ongoing reflection. Now, there comes a time when the water element is disturbed, and then the external earth element vanishes. So if you think, okay, where, where does that happen? What is that about? So when the water element is disturbed, what's that, a tsunami? Hmm, a flood? 
a heavy rain that washes the hill away. In the, in the footnote, it talks about the belief at that time that the world would end by water, you know, or fire, you know. But this idea that helps us see that when even this external earth element, great as it is, is seen to be impermanent, subject to destruction, disappearance, and change, what of this body, which is clung to by craving and lasts but a little while? It doesn't actually say little. It says lasts but a while. There can be no considering that as I or mine or I am. So then, so now here we get, this is the payoff part, this next bit. It may not sound like it right away, but trust me, it really is. So then, if others abuse, revile, scold, and harass a bhikkhu who has seen this element as it actually is, he understands thus, this painful feeling born of ear contact has arisen in me. So I hear this person saying these things about me and it feels painful. That's comforting to me because that's what happens to me when somebody scolds me or tells me off. That was going on 2,600 years ago and this monk is going to feel this pain even though he's got all this understanding. Okay, that's nice. I'm, I'm right there. <laughs> but he sees this is due to this ear contact. So does anyone know what are the three things that are required for contact? In the Buddha's description, you have the person speaking or the sound. You have an ear that can hear, meaning you have the mechanism, right? And then you have the consciousness that can interpret or understand what that means. Those are the three things that are necessary for actual contact. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of someone um, telling you off in another language that you don't understand. It doesn't have the same impact. I had that once. There was a woman in Thailand who was really upset about something, and, and I felt sympathetic, but, and she was upset with me, clearly. I didn't know what I did, and I didn't mean to do anything, and it, it wasn't really possible to have the same effect. So I could see how these, each of these is, is, is essential for that contact to occur. And it is that contact that then brings up the feeling. So this monk is clearly aware. He sees that contact is impermanent, that feeling is impermanent. Perception, so the perception of what this means and how it feels and how it's related to, you know, the other 19 times I got scolded or whatever, all of that is impermanent. Well, that's part of the mental formations, isn't it? The patterns in the mind. And that consciousness is impermanent. And his mind, having made an element of its objective support, it's a little hard to understand, but we'll get there, enters into that new object 
that new objective support and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. Because that one's a little hard to understand, I pulled out an alternative translation which says his mind with a property, the earth element property, as a support, leaps up, grows confident, steady, and released. So it's because of that reflection on the earth element, so great, so pervasive in our experience, impermanent, subject to change, then we can be clear that, oh, all of this is subject to change. All of it is impermanent. What I'm hearing, the feeling that arises. And then one, through that, acquires this confidence, this sense of peacefulness around it. Now, if others, so now he's going to raise the bar a little bit. If others attack that bhikkhu in ways that are unwished for, undesired, and disagreeable, by contact with fists, clods, sticks, or knives, he understands thus. This body is of such a nature that contact with fists, clods, sticks, and knives assail it. So it took me a while with this bit when I used to, when I first read it. It's like, what does that mean? Oh, okay. I have a body. This body's actually quite tough in some ways and quite delicate and and vulnerable in others. And it's it's a physical presence. And so someone who wants to hit me or stab me could do that because I have this body that's a physical presence. If I were immaterial, that wouldn't be possible, but I'm not. I mean, this body is material. So the acceptance of this is the reality we're in. Now I want to emphasize that I appreciate that they say this is an unwished for, undesirable, disagreeable occurrence. And I'll say more about this in a minute, but this is not to imply that we put ourselves in harm's way in any way. But you're saying if this happens to this monk, then he reflects. This has been said by the Blessed One in his advice on the simile of the saw. Anybody familiar yet? You're familiar? Anyone else? Simile of the saw goes into more detail around this, but this is part, this is a quote from it that appears in this sutta as well. It's another sutta in this middle-length discourses. The quote here is, Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, he, gave, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. And the Buddha gives us right at the end of a, of a long build-up that says, when we're engaged in verbal disputes, is there really anything we can't endure Is it essential that we react? No. You know, you should develop yourself to the point where even if this other very, very undesirable experience were to happen to you, you would not develop a mind of hatred. You would not. 
become hateful. And so when this monk reflects on this, tireless energy shall be aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established. My body shall be tranquil and untroubled, my mind concentrated and unified. And now let contact with fists, clods, sticks, and knives assail this body, for this is just how the Buddha's teaching is practiced. So again, I want to say that there is no place in the suttas that the Buddha says it's recommended to live with difficult people or to put yourself in harm's way. That's not the point. But the point being, when we cultivate this understanding and we really reflect on the nature of reality, the nature of the body, the nature of the other khandas, aspects of what we would think of as self, then we develop such a deep confidence and resilience, a deep equanimity, that we can be present with and able to be clear and stable throughout whatever experience. And of course, this is something we cultivate, we develop this skill and ability So this is the last paragraph I'm going to read from here. When that bhikkhu thus recollects the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So we're back to this recollection of the the triple gem. If equanimity supported by the, the wholesome does not become established in him, then he arouses a sense of urgency. So this is related to development of this confidence, of this stability, of this clarity. This monk is using the reflection on the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as a way to establish equanimity in himself throughout whatever adversity he may experience. And if in doing that, that equanimity doesn't arise then he, how do they put it, arouses a sense of urgency. And this is the same word. We're back to that word, sangwega, that we started with, our passage saying, this is, this is a passage to arouse urgency. So this is the reflection in his mind. It's a loss for me. It is no gain for me. It is bad for me. It is no good for me that when I thus recollect the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, equanimity supported by what is wholesome does not become established in me. Just as when a daughter-in-law sees her father-in-law, she arouses a sense of urgency to please him, so too, when that bhikkhu thus recollects, and so we can, that we can put that in a modern context, just as when you know, your boss comes in and you're working or you know, whoever it might be that, that we're likely to feel, oh, I must kind of shape up here and do what I can out of responsibility and kindness. So too, when that bhikkhu thus recollects the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, 
If equanimity supported by the wholesome does not become established in him, then he arouses a sense of urgency. So this is a fuel for the practice. Having an idea that this can be achieved, it should be achieved, and it will be achieved through our own determination and our sense of the importance of being able to establish this kind of skill with our mind. But if, when he recollects the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, equanimity supported by the wholesome becomes established in him, then he is satisfied with it. At that point, friends, much has been done by that bhikkhu. He's accomplished a lot. So that's what I wished to share. And I'd really be interested in hearing any questions or reflections. You mentioned the uh, four earth, water, fire, the four elements. What about, you know, in science, they, they have discovered new, you know, that matter comes out of nothing. How does Buddhism reflect on that? Then when something comes out of nothing, where, where, where is Buddhism? Like dark energy or dark matter. Yeah. Well, first I have to say that I take a very practical approach to the teachings. I don't see myself as a scholar. So... What comes to mind for me when I think of this question is the idea in the whole cosmology of Buddhism where everything that arises ceases, including the universe. So from my probably naive perspective regarding that science and that cosmology and how it comes together, intuitively that sounds to me like it comes out of nothing and it goes back again to nothing. But somehow there is a potential and that potential probably lives in that dark matter, right? So that it comes out again and goes back again. Um, I was just going to say, in in science, that is actually how they talk about it, as as a potential and not nothingness. It's not true nothingness that there's... It's more just, I guess, kind of like formlessness. Mm-hmm. That sounds just directly right on what I understand from the cosmology and the sense of how things work in the large <laughs> and probably in the small. I think a, a number of scholars and teachers have noted how fascinating it is that our science is beginning to be able to demonstrate many of the things that the ancient teachers described. Nice. (laughs) Thank you for the question. And 
thank you so much for your uh, presentation and talk today. So here before two, the other one, mm. one more, ah. um, like Bikubori talking about Bikubori and two. But anyway, anyway, I I heard you said that you had a, a Christian background, and by m me too myself. But it's the uh, universe and the the experience of life. I cannot deny that one that I was ca coming from mm -hmm. from Christian belief. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot deny, you know, this universe and uh, the moons and sun do not crash each other right. and. Uh, you know, stars do, do not drop down here, and all that. If something is there, but you can say that it's the science, you know. Mm. You can all say that science, whichever. Uh, then how does, do you completely erase the, the, some, something from the Christianity when you come to this uh, Buddhism? Mm. And how do you work on th those two beliefs? or, you know, fact. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. This is a, I think this is a really beautiful question. And I think it's relevant to many of us in this culture or in whatever culture where we may have been first schooled in a, in a different philosophy. So from my perspective, hmm, Sometimes we see a very close connection between the practice in different traditions. If you look at the mystical experience, oftentimes you can see how the description of those are very similar. Regardless of the doctrine or the philosophy, the, the way the teachings are laid out or the cosmology of the, of the religion. Yeah. And that makes sense to me because regardless of what framework we use to describe reality, we're all working with fundamentally the same spiritual material because we're in this experience. So, for me, there's been an evolution, I would say. Maybe, I mean, I think that's true for all of us. We practice and we somehow evolve. Our thinking evolves. And my sense of the core of your question is, what do you do with this concept of God or the divine in a philosophy that is reported as not having that entity or not postulating that existence. So I think from, from the perspective of understanding what's really there, it's like it comes down in at some point into what is it that we mean when we use these terms. 
what do we mean by God? What do we mean by creation or universe? And so for myself, what I noticed, first what I noticed as I began to study Buddhism and spend time with monks. So I had the opportunity, because my son was a monk, to spend time in the monasteries in Thailand, to stay there and to really live along with the monks and to experience what that life did and the the practice in that environment did for my heart. And what I what I saw was that they were practicing with such authenticity and the teachings were so alive in the life and in the in what was presented. And in, like I said, some of these master teachers and master practitioners in, in what one could experience in their presence, that I thought, okay, this, this is important to draw near to. At sometimes people would ask me, why did you choose Buddhism? And why did you turn away from Christianity, and I said, I haven't turned away. I don't see a conflict. I see an enrichment. And the experience that I used to have as a child in church where my hands would feel huge or my legs would feel there would that's this is really um what i understand from ajahn jeff at least this is piti this is rapture this is not the kind of rapture and then we get into definitions again not that word is it used in the christian sense but used in the buddhist sense this these spiritual experiences they happen in the context of the christian church as well and that uplift of the heart. So a few nights ago, I was listening to hymns with my mother. I mean, it's beautiful. It inspires her. It brings peace and joy. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that in my mind, to my mind. But the Buddhist teachings for me make it clearer it being this whole experience of life and and the universe so those are my two reasons when people would ask me they'd say I haven't turned away but for me I was able to find a group of people that actually practice with such diligence and such commitment and such um a full living of the teachings that I think, okay, coming close to that is important. And for me, the description that the Buddha lays out, he's incredibly skillful, clear, precise. I can actually follow it. And I have to say that even though I was serious 
even as a child, about spiritual matters and understanding teachings. I didn't feel that my training in that particular church gave me a clear enough idea of how to live my life so that I could be free from suffering. And so I feel, even though so much of it is there in, the, in black and white, I didn't find it really finding its solidity inside myself. So I would just recommend to anyone who's working with, whether it's a positive experience of their religion of origin or it's a, or it's a disappointing experience, whatever, to let go of animosity or, or rejection, let go of that and just appreciate what's wholesome and good and leads to the development of what's wholesome and good. An open, caring, compassionate heart that, that embraces generosity and goodness that is willing to develop in truth. Ajahn Brahm tells a story about parents who asked a monk that he was living with, you know, how should we raise our children? Should we raise them to follow Christianity? Should we raise them to follow Buddhism? Should we raise them? And, and this monk said, no, not any of those. Raise them to be truthful and raise them to question. And that's all you need to question, to really investigate everything, to really investigate and be truthful. And really, without that kind of unremitting honesty, we can't wake up. It has to be an honesty about ourselves and where we're at and an honesty about what we experience. And an honesty, a real investigation in these things that we're taught to take for granted or accept on blind faith, to really investigate them and see what's true. You're welcome. So our time is up, and let's just... um, Share blessings.